The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. A month ago, we surveyed the congregation. We invited you to send us favorite passages from the Bible. Specifically, we asked, what words from the good book most inspire you, comfort you, guide you? What passage do you have scrawled on a little three by five card tucked in the corner of your bathroom mirror? We asked, and great congregation that you are, you responded thoughtfully, enthusiastically. In fact, we have received so many submissions that I'm not sure we're gonna be able to deal with all of them in this series. Today, to cover as much ground as possible, I've decided to double up and actually triple up. <laughs> We're gonna consider three passages submitted by you today. One of them is our affirmation of faith. Um, all of them, in one way or another, speak about fear. Listen now for God's word to you as it comes to us first from Psalm 34, beginning with the first verse. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Our second passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Here, Jesus speaks to his friends in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Listen now for God's word as it echoes to us from Matthew chapter 6, beginning with the 25th verse. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, 
what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for it's the gentiles who strive for all these things and indeed your heavenly father knows that you need all these things but strive first for the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do not worry about your life, says Jesus. Do not fret, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Do not worry about tomorrow. Over and over, Jesus tells his friends not to be anxious. And his words, repeated and increasingly urgent, make one thing patently obvious. The disciples are worried people. They worry about the necessities of life, where we're going to get lunch, they worry about the cut of their clothes. Does this tunic look a little tired to you? They worry about tomorrow. Am I on the right path? Do we have a future following this rabbi around? They are human. And we humans worry a lot. It's a skill that we learned early in life. My elementary school in central Minnesota required that all students and teachers engage in regular fire drills. We also participated twice a year in tornado drills. In a tornado drill, we were dismissed from our classrooms and lined up in the hallway with our backs to the wall, and then we were instructed to crouch and cover our heads and necks with our hands. Some giggled at our absurd posture. We were a long row of toads. Mostly, though, everyone peered out from underneath laced fingers with anxious expressions. A, a tornado in that part of the country was a daunting thing, a real possibility. I remember sitting in the basement of our farmhouse with my parents and my brother listening to our crackly AM radio outside yellow green clouds swirled wind bent the trees our family rule was stay in the basement until the announcer at WCMP Pine City declared all clear <laughs> at times like this my mother would pray and as a kid, I didn't find her supplications especially comforting. Instead, her closed eyes and moving lips emphasized the seriousness of our circumstances. And it was serious. I had seen the remnants of a neighbor's barn which had been swatted flat by a tornado down in the basement, listening to the house creak, and overhearing my mother's mumbled prayers, a scary thought began to twist in my head. It could happen to us. It could happen to us. 
This recognition lies at the root of all fear. It could happen to me. There's, there's risk in my situation. Uh, other people in the same circumstances have, have lost their homes, have lost their jobs, lost their baby, lost their nest egg, lost their sanity, lost their loved ones, lost life and limb. It could happen to us. This is fear. <laughs> it's a hardwired response in us, and it has a clear purpose. For thousands of years, fear has given human beings a fighting chance. When we sense danger, fear increases our heart rate. It squeezes a little adrenaline into our system. It gives us a, a crucial burst of energy, enabling us to run, to leap, to grab a tree branch, to pull ourselves up and away from a charging grizzly bear. <laughs> in certain situations, the boost we get from fear can mean the difference between life and death. But of course, most of us haven't been chased by a grizzly bear this past week. Begging the question, what are we doing in this modern world with our fear? If we're not fleeing something that wants to eat us, where are we putting our anxiety, our adrenaline? Doctors tell us this is a real problem. Surplus fear keeps us up at night. It threatens our health. It puts pressure on our pipes. And the adverse effects of fear extend beyond the individual. Fear can travel like a contagion through the wider society. I regularly read the editorial pages of both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. In general, when it comes to the news of the day, there's not a whole lot of agreement between these two corners of the public square with one notable exception. While their political leanings are markedly different, their rhetorical tactics are quite similar. A startling number of the op-eds that I read have me flashing back to grade school tornado drills. Put your hands over your heads, crouch in the hallway, good people, because if we go down this path, terrible things are going to happen. Behind the interlaced fingers of these arguments lies a savvy and sometimes cynical insight into human nature. Fear motivates people. Tell people that their beliefs, their hopes, their future, their tomorrows, as Jesus puts it, are in danger, and you can get them moving. You can get them to act. All of this is to say that fear can take us down a shadowy path. Fear can lead us to jettison reason. Fear can make ethics seem like a luxury. Fear can expose communities to the appeals of demagogues, fear mongers. When a politician or a preacher or a media personality fans a culture's phobias, she or he is igniting a terrible cycle. Pump up collective anxiety and you fertilize the seeds of hate. 
fertilize hate and you increase the chances for violence. Increase violence and you get more fear. Maybe FDR was right. We ought to fear fear itself. In many ways, the roots of society's fears, I think, can be traced back to our own personal anxieties, the fears that bang around in our heads all the time, fears for our health, fears for our livelihood, fears that we're failing at work or school or life, fears that we're not providing what our teachers want, what our parents expect, what our job requires, fears that we are rudderless, worthless, that we have no real purpose in life, fears that we are and always will be alone in this world. Underlying all of this, say some, is humanity's biggest fear. We fear death, the great candle snuffer. And we fear the indignities that may come before the end. In many cases, more than our own demise, we fear the death of those that we love, those whom we cherish more than life itself. And these fears, all these fears, they've got our attention. They bend our spines, and it's really not a surprise that, that when you were asked to submit favorite Bible passages, those here in the sanctuary and those in our extended church family submitted verses that promise deliverance from fear. And here, the good book is happy to oblige. Our holy text knows that we spend a good bit of time and energy wrestling with fear. Did you know that the most common one-liner in the Bible, the most common sentence, the sentence most repeated in the Bible is, do not be afraid. This phrase, do not be afraid, appears 365 times in scripture. Now, I'm typically not one of those people who makes a whole lot about numerical coincidences, but I do think it's kind of neat that the Bible contains one do not be afraid for every day of the year. In other words, it makes sense that you sent along the verses that you did. There's solace to be had here. A few years ago, one of you wrote me a note describing an especially fearful time in your life. It went like this. As a young teenager, I was very anxious. I couldn't leave home even for a weekend without becoming horribly homesick. During a miserable week at, week at Baptist church camp, a kind counselor befriended me and suggested that I read the Psalms particularly Psalm 34. I underlined this verse in my blue leather Bible, and I still think about it when I'm faced with a challenge. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. 
This is exactly the sort of lifeline that we expect from Scripture. God delivered me from my fears. Yes, thank you. Our hope is focused on something real. The thing that we crave can happen. God delivered this person from her fears. Well, why not me? We cheer the psalmist's deliverance, and then naturally our inquisitive minds begin to whir. Well, how does God deliver us? <laughs> what does deliverance from fear look like? Is this real? I think the best way to answer these questions is to turn to our second passage for today. In this section from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very attentive to the concerns of the disciples. Sometimes he seems to ignore them or, or kind of, no, you're focused on the wrong thing. But, but here he, he pays attention to the furrows on his friend's brows. He, he actually describes their worries, very real worries, basic worries about food and clothing and whether the next village would have a place where they might stay. And, and then, bending down, our Lord plucks a flower, a wildflower, growing in the fields of Galilee. Consider the lilies of the field, says Jesus. And, and he twirls the flower so that its petals flash their beauty. Consider this simple bloom. It does not toil. It does not wring its hands. It does not worry about how it appears to others, and yet no human king or queen has ever been clothed in glory like this bloom. I'd like us to consider two things about this favorite biblical passage. First, Jesus interrupts the disciples' endless loop of anxiety. He puts his foot on the hamster wheel of concern that can trap us. Do you know that feeling? Anxiety can take us for an exhausting spin. When fear drifts into view, anxiety can become our focus, and, and we poke at it. We consider all the horrible possibilities it has for us, and these potentially bad outcomes can lead us to other fears, and soon we're cycling from one fear to the next, staring at the ceiling at 3 a.m., trapped in a loop of anxiety. We become like that teenager at camp, unable to see beyond our own misery, unsure that there's any escape. Jesus breaks this loop, and he does this not by dismissing the disciples' worries. Instead, he lists them. You're worried about food and clothing, status and safety. God, says Jesus, gets this. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Calm yourself, Jesus continues. Stop piling worry on top of worry. There will be time enough and reason enough to worry tomorrow. Are Christ's words comforting to you? Tomorrow will bring worries of its own or reason for more anxiety. <laughs> but in a way, this counsel reminds me of a sign that I once saw hanging behind a bar in a fish shack in Florida. 
It said, free beer tomorrow. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> I imagine some poor soul returning the next day for his free beer, only to have the owner point to the sign, come back tomorrow. <laughs> Take up your worries tomorrow, says Jesus. For now, focus on today. Focus on all the people. Focus on the joys and the sorrows that today has scattered in your path. Do you see what Christ is doing? Like a caring camp counselor who sees a teenager stuck in, in a loop of distress, Jesus interrupts the cycle. He turns our focus to today. He asks us to attend to what theologian Paul Tillich called the eternal now or the eternal in the midst of the now. Look at this flower. Consider the lily, says Jesus. It's covered in glory and grace. To look on this flower is to see that God cares about it. God cares about a blossom that will shrivel up in the sun and blow away this afternoon. Jesus sticks that lily under the disciples' nose and he begs them to look, to sniff, to pause, to reflect. He interrupts the endless anxious chatter in their heads by asking them to focus on the present, on being present. The second thing happening in this story is that Jesus draws the disciples deeper into faith. Most of the time, we act like doubt is the flip side of faith. We act as if hard questions are the opposite of faith. But in reality, doubt and questions are all part of faith. Scripture teaches us something very different. The opposite of faith is fear. Why do I say that? Because fear will lie to you. Fear will tell you that your anxiety is the most real thing in the world. Fear insists that grace is scarce. Love is scarce. Fear would have us conclude that we are alone, utterly alone. On the other hand, faith trusts that we are not alone. The flip side of our deepest anxiety is believing that God cares about you and what is happening to you right now. Faith is what happens when you watch Jesus twirl that lily in his hand and say, if God cares so much about this flower, how much more do you imagine that God cares about you, you who are one of God's beloved children? Christ's message, I think, is clear. Fear teaches that love is scarce, grace is scarce, yet faith testifies that God has this kind of liberal hand when it comes to dousing the world with glory. It's there in the sparrow and the lilies. All you have to do is 
is step off the anxious hamster wheel for a second, pick a flower, consider it, and you will start to sense how much God cares about you. <laughs> 35 years ago, golly, I paid a visit to Princeton Seminary. I'd applied to the PhD program there and I was on campus for an interview. I was nervous, ready to assume my tornado drill posture. My dad accompanied me on the visit. As we drove along together toward Princeton down Route 1, I kept thinking, this was a bad idea. <laughs> my dad didn't get it. He really didn't understand the process I was going through or have a real appreciation for my fears. As we drove toward Princeton, his questions only served to heighten my anxiety. Note to self, don't bring your father to a school interview. <laughs> Eventually, we pulled up to one of the main buildings on campus. I left my father in the car <laughs> so that I could go get directions to the PhD studies office. After a few minutes, I emerged and I was shocked to find the car empty. Where was dad? I scanned the campus and then I noticed a group of students walking and glancing nervously at a row of shrubs along the corner of one of the buildings. Sure enough, pushing the branches aside, my father emerged from the bushes. The students looked at him with quizzical and somewhat frightened expressions on their faces. I was mortified, my anxiety shooting off the charts. Dad, I asked in clipped tones, what the heck are you doing? What are you doing in the bushes at Princeton? <laughs> well, he said kind of sheepishly, there was this little bird hopping around on the grass. It had fallen out of its nest, and I was worried because I see that they're mowing the lawns. I was worried that a lawnmower might come by, so I got out and I, and I used some of your papers here to scoop it up and put it back in the nest. I don't know that he intended it, but my father's actions reset me. They grounded me. And I went on to have a pretty good interview. Look, says Jesus, at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? Favorite texts like this remind us, my friends, that God's grace is no mere trickle. <laughs> it's a river that runs deep and wide, wide and deep. And we can see it, actually see it all around us if only we take the time to step away from anxious loops and consider the lilies. 
Do not worry about anything, the Apostle Paul writes, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.